Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. I am Elliot Shibley, and here with me, as always, is the droll Robert Demena. <laughs> I'm going to need a definition there. Are you ready? Yes. Droll. Curious or unusual in a way that provokes dry amusement. Okay. And there's, a picture, there's a picture of you as well. <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh... This droll guy is going to say that uh, for those listening, please reach out to us on all of our social media platforms. Leave a review on iTunes, something that's very important to the po- to the podcast and, and and to us and to us. Yeah, it it, it 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 will mean a lot to us. So please, if you're listening, take a few seconds out of your day, leave us a review, and we will greatly appreciate it. And we will end up reading your review on the show, which is pretty cool. Today's guest grew up in Kansas City but has spent the last eight years in Peru, but not before living in Brazil, Lebanon, and Mexico. Today, she will be making yours and our mouths water and our stomachs gurgle in her descriptions of the multiculturally influenced Peruvian cuisine, which has quickly become one of the top, if not the number one culinary destination of the world. Without further ado, please welcome Sam Lewis. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Hi, Sam, and welcome to the show. So how does a girl from Kansas City end up owning the most successful food tour company in the city of Lima? And I guess probably all of Peru. Is that right? Yeah, that would be right. I mean, Lima is pretty much the center of things. It's not the center of life in Peru, but it does have a very protagonistic role. So yeah, that would be, there'd be some accuracy in that statement. And it is kind of a particular destination for a girl from Kansas City, for sure. Um, you know, I studied abroad in Spain when I was in high school and uh, did college there, started working there. And I met this really cool Peruvian guy and, you know, all for love. That's what they say. And that's what happened. So he's like, let's move to Peru. So I said, yeah, why not? Let's do it. So we ended up here about eight years ago and um, both really like food. We love culture. We like traveling. And so it was just kind of a natural step. It was kind of a hobby that turned into a business. So it's been a really fun ride. Wow. That sounds like an awesome ride. Been fun for sure. Yeah. Intense. (laughs) So from Kansas City to Spain, and you did some time in other countries as well, right? You lived in six or seven other countries? Yes, yes, I did. That's right. We, um, <clears throat> so when I started working in Spain after college, you know, I just fell into this job that we were doing economic reports and nation branding campaigns. So they would send us to different countries for about six or seven months, and we would get a chance to be much more than tourists. And so we would actually, you know, be conducting interviews all around the country, get a feel for different industries in the country, get kind of the backstory while we're, we're gathering editorial there. And usually they were destinations that needed a little bit of help with their image, you know, depending on, you know, current political or economic situations. So we got to go to some pretty unique destinations for sure. Um, so that kind of just opened up my eyes to everything you know, what culture is really, you know, you can sit there in a classroom in Kansas City and learn all about it. You want to read books, you know, magazines, see documentaries, but until you get out and live it and meet the people and hear the stories behind everyday life, you know, you don't, you don't get it. You know, it's really life changing. So after that, I kind of never went back. (laughs) I appreciate the uh, wanting to go somewhere and kind of assimilate as much as you can rather than just play the tourist role. So how are you able to go and study abroad through high school in Spain? Yeah, great question. You know, when I was in high school, we had, there was a German foreign exchange student who, she was there, she was like probably the first foreigner that I had met at that, you know, age, you know, in the early 2000s, 14 year old. And so listening to her experience and her, you know, getting out and coming to a new country and, you know, staying that for a year, just really fascinated me. So, you know, I kind of approached our school guidance counselors and I'm like, hey, I want to study abroad. And they were like, I don't really know what you're talking about. You know, we receive students, but we've never had anyone, you know, go abroad. So we had to actually sit down together and kind of design an agreement to be able to transfer credits and everything. I did some research on different study abroad programs and I actually had to pitch them on the idea of accepting the credits and doing it. And uh, they accepted because there was, there was no precedent at the high school where I studied at that time. And so, uh, 
you know, they said, sure, why not? And we, we did it. And that's, that's kind of how it all got started, you know? And once you take that first trip, it just, the travel bug gets you. It does. That's amazing. A lot of, I doubt many people would have ever put themselves forward to try to like talk to a guidance counselor and say, I want to go abroad. And the fact that you're able to do it, a lot of people make excuses to not travel abroad. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I can say they were definitely surprised. Everyone was pretty, pretty surprised, you know, (laughs) at, at that time, you know, it was kind of just the idea of study abroad and, you know, people doing it younger and younger and not just in college, you know, it was just beginning back then. So it was, you know, the world has become globalized even more, you know, in the last 15 years. So it's it's interesting to see how that's kind of, it's very pervasive, you know, and it's kind of started slow and it's taken on. It's a big wave now. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Hopefully you weren't the last person to study abroad from your high school. Yeah, you know, I haven't checked in on that, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, that would be good to do. Now I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, I remember I did uh, a week in Costa Rica during college and... It was just on this farm. We actually had the farmer on and he hosts people from all across the world. And when we were there, he had this German high school student for like really? three months and he was like 15 or 16. It was yeah. it was unreal. And he also, yeah. I, while we were there, he also, you know, sliced his hand with a machete. So he had to get taken to the hospital as a 15 or 16 year old. I'm sure that's a memorable story for him. Yeah, I bet. I'm sure. Definitive one. (laughs) Wow. And how did that? So, okay, so you had this farmer. That's amazing. So how did that kind of change your perspective, you know, getting to go to Costa Rica for a week and, you know, go be on a farm? A lot of people stay in the city, you know, and are looking around or go to the museums, you know, so how did that kind of change your perspective on travel and what's possible? It, It changed it majorly. I would say that was the first time for me that I had traveled abroad and besides like Canada. And it was not with family. It was with this little close-knit group from, I went to school at Penn State and it was just this Penn State group. And it was more of like a agritourism slash service learning. We were getting cultured on Costa Rican uh, farming techniques, sustainability. The guy was technically an expat from the United States, but had lived there since he was eight years old. And it like conversations by the fire just was just opened up the all of the thoughts on world culture and what I'm doing with my life. I think that's where I caught my travel bug. Wow, that's really transformative. That's a cool story. Yeah. So 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 for you, Sam. So you caught the the travel bug at a very young age, and it now landed you where you are today in Lima. And not only that. So I think for most people, when they travel. Food is one of the driving factors. They all want to try the local food. That's, you know, the food plays such a big role in understanding the culture and the history of the city of anywhere you are. And so you moved to Peru and now transform that into the Lima Gourmet um, Company. And you now provide tours throughout the city that sort of are interactive with the food and the culture. And you give brief history and, and help people understand why the food there is the way it is. Can can you get into that and maybe give us a little history lesson on on maybe pre-Spanish colonization and then how the Spanish influenced the the current food system there? The Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. You know, when we started the business, you know, Lima in terms of tourism and in Peru, it's you know, it's in its adolescence, maybe at best, you know, you're looking at a destination like Mexico with 39 million visitors a year. And then you look at Peru, and we're looking at about three and a half million. And this is double from just about five years ago. So it's still, we are, you know, really at the beginning of this. So when we, um, you know, I started the business with my husband, so it's like an American Peruvian operation we have going on here. And people would stay an average of less than a day in Lima when, when they were coming through the city, because everyone wants to come and go to Machu Picchu, to Cusco, to the jungle. Um, so Lima, you know, we really wanted to get their attention and not have them skip over the city or stay in the airport and being the capital and it's a very centralized destination. Lima is there's about, you know, a population of 33 million for Peru, about 10 million of those inhabitants live in Lima. So food was a great way to kind of introduce that because there's so many stories behind food and you can actually see and taste and smell in a very sensorial way, the history of the country. So when you're talking about, you know, when we do the tours, so it's about a five-hour experience, 
and what we like to cover, you know, we cover, like you mentioned, you know, a little bit of the current socioeconomic context, a little bit of the history, you know, from 1950, 1960, Lima had a population of around 1 million inhabitants. Nowadays, we have around 10 million. So this is a massive population growth in a relatively short amount of time. So all of those different factors have also contributed into the evolution of the cuisine and the stories being told, the live living history being told through the food in Lima. So when you talk about the pre-Spanish, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, there are a couple different factors which kind of position Lima as an interesting foodie destination. So just geographically, when we look at Peru, you have 1,500 miles of coastline. So along the coast, we obviously have the Pacific Ocean, and we have the Humboldt Current that runs up and keeps the sea a little colder than it should be, which is amazing for marine biodiversity. We have lots of seafood, octopus, you have sharks, you know, you have a bit of everything, you have scallops. So that kind of richness has contributed to the food. Then you have the Andes, and then you have the jungle. So these three factors have contributed a lot over the years. So you have one of the oldest civilizations in the world being found in Peru, which is in Caral. Say Caral is about 5,000 years old. So we're talking about pre-Spanish. You know, Spanish is like relatively modern history 500 years ago. So Caral, the civilization from 5,000 years ago, there's already evidence found that they were using the fish and mixing it with chili peppers, all right, and with different ingredients to give it flavor. So not just eating to survive, but eating for flavor, you know, and making it better, creating new dishes. So that's just the beginning. And you have these several civilizations after Caral to where we are today. And more specifically, when we look at the Spanish influence in the last 500 years, you've had the Spanish come and they've brought the influence from the Moors as well, from Andalusia in the south of Spain, which you'll see all throughout Latin America, particularly in Peru, because Peru was the capital, basically, of the Spanish Empire. So the vice royalty at the, at the time. And um, you had the Italians, the French, you had the English as well come and the Chinese and Japanese. So you have all of these different immigration movements, these migratory movements in the last 500 years. So when you come to Lima and you try the food, you have this fusion, all of these different fusions. So you, like, when you say traditional Peruvian cuisine, it's almost difficult to pin down. You know, you have the highlands and the Andes and you have the Amazon as well, but you have all these different fusions from these pre-Hispanic civilizations using like gourds. They found evidence of um, different crops you know, being cultivated five and six, 6,000 years ago, different vegetables, you know, different, you know, corn is native to America, uh, to Peru, potatoes as well. There are over 4,000 different varieties of potato. So you've just seen thousands of years of evolution. So it's kind of in the DNA of Peruvians, this importance of food and these different, all of this biodiversity that is played into it as well. So when we do the tour, we try to focus. I mean, five hours is not a lot of time to cover so much history as you can imagine. But the best way to do it and the most interesting kind of in our perspective has been through the food instead of going, you know, like museums are amazing. Churches are amazing. A lot of people that arrive to Peru have already kind of done those routes. They've already seen kind of more colonial cities and they've seen those influences. So when you look at it through the food, you get like, a, you know, just a much more experiential um, tale to tell after your visit by tasting it and living it and hearing those stories. So that's kind of what we focus on. Wow. I if that makes sense. I would love to do that. I like learning, but I think I would like learning a lot more if I were eating what I was learning. <laughs> right. And wouldn't you remember it? I mean, you actually have something that your brain and your sensations can tie to those histories, you exactly. know, instead of just taking away a couple dates, right? Yeah. yeah. And the, that's the idea. The olfactory senses, they just connect right to the hippocampus. So you're just learning without even trying. You're going to remember that Absolutely. forever. Absolutely. Definitely. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And that we still, you know, after people take the tour, they even contact us like a year later, two years later. They're like, hey, we did your tour, but we're coming back and we really want to do it again or do the night tour. You know, so we've created, you know, people don't often travel back. Peru's kind of uh, dis in distance, you know, more removed destination for a lot of people, even if you are coming from North America. So chances are you may not come back. You know, you're going to go to other destinations, but you see people coming back and it's kind of opening that. Uh, that kind of highway for repeat visitors to the country. You know, there's just so much to explore because it hasn't really been developed yet. So it's really an interesting time to be here. It's very dynamic. Wow. It really is. Are there, so with the kind of multifaceted history that Peru has and with all of the influence from foreigners, what is the cultural demographic right now as it stands? 
you know, it's very mixed. And that's an, that's a really interesting question. It's very relevant because last year, the beginning of this year, we had a census, right? And one of the census, one of the questions on the census was trying to get people to identify how they identify ethnically. Um, and there was just this, this just opened up this massive debate because at the end of the day, it's just culturally so mixed and so fused down to the food, to the architecture, to the identities. Uh, you know, it's a predominantly Catholic religion, but when you see, you know, all these different factors being woven in, people can identify, you know, with, they ended up, you know, having these interviews on different media outlets about what defines ethnicity. Is that how you define through what you're living? Does that have to do with your ancestors? I mean, it opened up this whole debate about how we should be identifying our identities. So when you look, you know, at Peru, Peru, our heaviest influences are, you know, from the pre-Hispanic civilizations, without a doubt, the indigenous tribes, the Andes, we have, it's very um, heavily um, embedded in the culture that we see that's present and exported kind of as an image, you know, from the Andes. But you have a very heavy, obviously, Spanish influence. But the um, Japanese and Chinese influence is huge, too. You get these cuisines and this architecture coming out, you know, in terms of Japanese Nikkei and Chinese Chifa, you know, you get this Creole influence as well. So what you really see is just this, there's this one street in Barranco, which sums it up perfectly. You walk down the street, this is a district that was established at the late, the late 1700s, all right? You walk down the street and you'll find these houses these, that have been built from about the 1820s on to the early 1900s. And they, you see every style right next to each other <laughs> on the street. You know, you'll see like a building with very clear Japanese tendencies, a Tudor style house, an old Spanish um, hacienda type house with the inner patio. And they're all right next to each other. So this is a perfect microcosm for what we're living now in Peru and this kind of multifaceted identity that everyone is a little bit of everything. You know, there are even local expressions that kind of allude to that. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. It is. The so melting pot for sure. Yeah. Well, so I think I'm going to be starving by the end of this podcast, but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into what some of these ingredients in Peru actually are. And so I know seafood is a big deal coming, you know, being so close to the, the Pacific Ocean. And then you mentioned um, having the Andes right there. I think I don't know as much about what ingredients are actually coming from the jungle. I'm assuming fruits, but could you take us through all of these, you know, these ingredients and how they're then fused together and maybe some of the common dishes that uh, people would be eating on your tour? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So we'll start, just as you broke it down, I think that's perfect. You know, that you kind of identified the main, the three main regions with worldwide. These are the three main geographical regions are the coast, the highlands, and the jungle. So Peru is a, has all three of those. So when you get to the coast, you know, you're going to see mainly seafood. Um, <clears throat> you've had chilies that are cultivated here for a long time. You have over 400 varieties of chili pepper. So those are very important, you know, to the local cuisine. Limes are very important to the local cuisine. However, that's an ingredient that was actually brought by the Europeans. That was brought by the Spanish, the lime. So before you would have a dish like ceviche. So this is a very typical dish from the coast. All right. Uh, which is, you know, obviously because of seafood. So you have some fresh fish. We usually, we usually use uh, sea bass or flounder, marinated in lime juice, and you have some red onions, chili peppers, you have a secret sauce, which is a base called tiger's milk, that every restaurant has their own recipe for this, and no one discloses it, that's why they all taste <laughs> differently, you know, they have their own hallmark flavors, um, a little bit of cilantro, some garlic coming out, so Peruvian cuisine is all about balance, so when you see this in this coastal dishes, you're going to have these citrusy flavors, so before the Spaniards came, they would use a fruit called the tumbo fruit, which is a cousin of the passion fruit, but doesn't have as high a citric acid volume. So they would uh, marinate the fish overnight. So it was completely cooked by the next morning and eat it. Whereas nowadays when we make ceviche, if you marinate it in that lime juice, which is called the Creole lime, which is just particular to Peru, it is the fish is actually cooked in three to four minutes. So you see this evolution of this dish and the way that the fish is sliced. So this has actually come with the, you know, heritage that the Japanese have brought us because they're sliced almost like a sashimi, you know, or at a di diagonal kind of <clears throat> cut so that the fish can be better penetrated by the lime juice and cooked, you know. So you have the spiciness of the chili pepper, and a lot of times it's even served with a sweet potato, glazed sweet potato, so a little sweetness coming in as well, looking for this perfect balance of flavors. Then when you move into the highlands, 
Potatoes. Potatoes are king. So we talked about that 4,000 types of potatoes. I mean, there's even the International Potato Institute is in Lima. All right. And so they keep the genetic information of all of these varieties of potato on file. So if there's another worldwide famine, you know, Peru's going to save the world and we will at least have potatoes to eat. Right. <laughs> so the Andes, yeah, you get these potato dishes. You have uh, a type of an herb that's a cousin of a mint. It's called wakatai. So it's an Andean mint. So you get these flavors mixed together. Guinea pig. I don't know if you've heard, but guinea pig is eaten traditionally in the Andes. Yeah. I'm very excited uh, for that. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah, looking forward to it as well. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. You know, the key to finding a good one is looking for really good, uh, a place that has a great marinade. You have this spicy guinea pig dish and it's like a spicy peanut sauce. And then it's cooked, you know, it's grilled, and it is just fantastic. It's all about the, the flavors, you know. And then the jungle, something you said, Bob, that was really funny, it struck me as funny, is that, you know, you weren't very familiar with Amazonian ingredients necessarily. And that would be true of most Peruvians. And this is despite the fact that the jungle actually represents two-thirds of Peru's topography. So this is, you're just getting people now, only now within the last 10 years, you know, 15 years, you have this chef named Pedro Miguel Schiaffino, who has organized these excursions to the jungle to actually investigate and research different ingredients. And, you know, as we know, the Amazon is home to all kinds of plants, uh, fruits, vegetables, kind of almost miracle ingredients that, you know, are the base of a lot of our pharmaceutical industries nowadays. So there's still so much to explore. And luckily, the people that are advocating for that in Peru are doing so in a sustainable way and respecting the local communities and great and great aspects. And that's something coming out of the kind of culinary movement that we've been experiencing. So they're kind of rescuing and bringing these ingredients out to light back to the coast, to the capital and introducing them even domestically. And people are like, wow, look at all these Amazonian flavors, because they've kind of been pigeonholed into these really basic recipes and it's about so much more. You have these different types of fermented roots. You have all of these fruits that are coming out that people have never even seen before. It's really, really incredible. So cuisine from the jungle, something that would be, you know, representative, would be anything made. There's this fish from the Amazon called paiche. So this is one of the largest freshwater fish in the world. It can get up to 10 feet. It's massive. And this chef that I just mentioned, so he has just inaugurated the first paiche festival. So kind of all around the stories and legends of this fish, what dishes can be made, you know, how it's a source of sustenance for the local population. So it's it's really fascinating how it's kind of making its way out. So during the tour, we kind of tried to cover all of those regions and explore these fusion of dishes. So you'll get these like Creole dishes. One, of, This is a perfect example, right, of how this is kind of moved on. There's a dish called anticucho. So the anticucho are actually beef heart skewers. All right. They're put onto a skewer. They've been marinated and then a little bit of um, cumin, some paprika, some garlic, and it's usually served on a bed of corn. And this originally started when the Spaniards came, they brought the Moorish women with them. All right. And then they, there was slavery existed in Peru at this time. The best cuts of meat would go to the family and the owners of these large productive haciendas. And everything else, all of the entrails, every, all of the remains, everything else would go to the slaves and the domestic health. So they would have to get extremely creative about the different marinades and all of the different, you know, ingredients to make these dishes something that, you know, they could look forward to, something to eat, something more than survival. So now, you know, as this dish has progressed throughout the years, you know, 15 years ago, it would just be so seen as street food being sold on a grill, on a skewer, you know, at night, kind of like after you go to the bar, you get some anticuchos out on the street or Sunday stroll with your family on the street. Now you find these in the top restaurants in Lima, you know, these like beautifully presented little beef heart skewers, you know, so you <laughs> see this transformation in many of the dishes, which is really cool to see. Wow. That's amazing. Um, are you familiar with Chef's Table? Absolutely. All yes. Right. So yep. I guess it was last season that uh, Martinez was on from Central and that his, that episode was incredibly amazing just to see his how he presented all of his foods going from altitude zero all the way up to like i don't know what was it nine thousand meters yeah they it gets no, not not very, nine thousand that's, yeah, that's everest <laughs> yeah about like five yeah about five you know peru the high sea is like six thousand meters or so the huascaran i think a little over that so yeah four and five thousand meters would be kind of where they uh 
he, he's going up to. And they've even established a research institute that they've just opened this year. So he has Centralste, which they've just moved to another part of the city. And they've opened another restaurant um, with a research center called Mil to really investigate all of these different ingredients yes. coming out of the highlands, which is amazing. Yeah, you it's know? so awesome. Definitely. In, in getting the local communities involved. You know, there's a, sometimes can be a lot of criticism, especially revolving around, you know, this like idea of hot cuisine, you know, or very sophisticated dining experiences, you know, that it's not representative maybe of the whole economic reality of the country, you know, or that it's a very exclusive dining event. But you have these chefs nowadays that have these this very deeply uh, founded and cemented social commitment with communities, the impact on communities, these products that they have been farming for generations and their family and the stories behind those and involving them in the final experience of the consumer by putting them on the menu and the stories behind how these crops are cultivated and where they're from. So it's opening the door culturally to understand these different parts of the country, not just this ultra sophisticated dining experience to have a nice evening. Right. And Peru now or Lima itself actually has three or four of the top 50 restaurants in the world. And Central yeah. is number four right now. Yeah, they've done, it's really um, been amazing. So that right now, this year, we have three. So Central, Maido, and Astrid y Gaston. So those are the three. And so when you look at the top 10 list of, of the list of the world's 50 best restaurants, Lima is the only city that actually has two restaurants listed in the top 10. So just as a culinary destination, that's really helped to cement Lima as kind of one of the world's leading culinary destinations, you know? Um, you have, you know, France has a couple, Spain has a couple, they're spread out and they highlight different regions of the cuisine. But what you're seeing in, yeah, in Lima is that it's all kind of being consolidated right in, in the heart, you know? So it's, it's great for travelers as well, because it's kind of like a one-stop shop when you're coming through the city and you can explore, uh, you know, many different flavors and have different experiences in one destination. Yeah. So now now that we have an idea of some of the dishes, can you bring us into the city itself and um, give us an idea of what neighborhoods someone would would travel to to go to to get some of these dishes and then uh, give us some insight on some of the, your favorite restaurants? Yeah, absolutely. Would love to. It's my favorite topic of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Hard job I have here. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, that's the question about the city, getting into the city in different areas of the city is crucial when navigating a destination like Lima. So as I mentioned, Lima has a population of about 10 million people. So it's a pretty massive metropolis. So out of the city, you have 43 different districts. So when you come here, like, okay, where do I do? Where do I go? You know, the, there's the historic center of Lima, which many people, you know, when looking around, you're like, oh, the center of Lima, you want to be in the center of the city. That would be kind of misleading in the city, in the case of Lima, because you have kind of the restaurant scene, different shops, the cultural offer. More, um, they are located in, in another area of the city, really. So, kind of the areas where, if you're coming through and you have a couple days to explore, where you're going to want to be is Miraflores. Miraflores is the um, kind of commercial center of the city, the touristy center of the city. They have, you know, again, the museums, the infrastructure. <clears throat> you have uh, the different shops. You have just a very wide range of offers for anything that you could want to do kind of while you're here. You really wouldn't have to leave me to Florida if you didn't want to. However, what it does have on the other hand is that it's quite developed. It's quite one of the more cosmopolitan, let's say, areas of the city. So in that sense, it kind of looks like maybe other parts of other cities. You know, it hasn't necessarily preserved a very distinct Peruvian character, let's say. It's more... Um, talks to all of the different fusions, you know, that have come through the country. And then you have, you have a more historic district like San Isidro, where you're also going to find some lovely, amazing restaurants. You have the olive grove there, which is interesting because olives and grapes, as well as the lime, were brought by the Spanish. And that is the first olive grove in all of the Americas, all right, that dates back to the 1500s when the first olive was brought. And it's still there. So you can go through the, the olives are actually still harvested and uh, kind of in a symbolic gesture, the municipality um, gives them out to the residents that live around the olive grove. But it's protected by, you know, cultural heritage. So you can't just go pick your olives there. So that's good. You know, it's preserved and protected. Yeah. Oh, you looked disappointed, Elliot. You're I, ready to come I was down ready to and... go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, one of the other areas of the city that's gotten a lot of attention over the last few years which is like good and bad because I live there, you know, it's becoming discovered now. 
Barranco. There's this area of the city called Barranco, right? So it's gone through a lot of, and it's right in the middle of a kind of a transition now. And when I mentioned that Central had actually moved, uh, Virgilio Martinez and Pileon's restaurant, it wasn't Miraflores before. Now it's moved to Barranco. There are other restaurants. Two of the new kind of hippest restaurants uh, on offer have just opened up in Barranco in the last few months. So this is this area is starting to change a lot. You know, it's, it's got more of a hipster vibe. It was actually just declared like one of the top 25 hipster destinations in terms of cities. So that's kind of the vibe you're looking at. However, it's decided finally to compete with Miraflores and actually protect the old and the classic style of architecture that is uh, originally from this, this area, the Barranco area. So it's an area that's preserved the character and the essence of that side of the city, which makes it so cool. You have these like little cobblestone streets and little bars overlooking the Pacific Ocean. You can see the whole coastline all the way to the airport. So you have, um, you know, different museums open, like art museums and art galleries. You have live music there. So that's what's going on in Barranco, you know. So anyone looking to come, if you're going like the classic route, you're going to have or look up the classic travel guides. Everyone will tell you to go to Miraflores. And in my opinion, yeah, go and visit Miraflores, but stay in Barranco. You know, that's where you're going to get a feel for like everything that's kind of going on in the city. Um, so that's that's changing a lot. Some of uh, my favorite restaurants, you know, are spread a little bit, you know, throughout the city. Um, you, you can really get, it's, it's almost hard to pin down because of all the different fusions we've been talking about, as well as just the wide variety of offers. You know, you have your dives and you have like very sophisticated places, you know, like if I want to go, there's a big culture of having like sandwiches in the morning, which actually stems from the Italians, from the Italian kind of migratory arrival to Peru. So you have these uh, kind of a, a ham sandwich with some onions, some chili peppers, a little bit of lime, some cilantro, you know, kind of this really nice freshly baked French bread. And there's just this little hole in the wall off this main avenue. You have this guy that's been running it for the last 50 years. You come in, he's behind the counter, just gets it off. It's, it's really like you go there and you're a local, you know, and it's just part of the neighborhood. So you still have these little, these little kind of hidden places around the city, which is amazing. And then, um, you have a restaurant, uh, you know, seafood is amazing in Lima. So you got a lot of that. There's one called El Mercado, which is my favorite, which they do a great grilled octopus. And that's another one. You can watch them make it, but they will never give you the secrets, you know, behind the marinade because it's an octopus that's just, it's very tender and also crunchy. So it has this perfect balance, you know, again, with the balance. Uh, you have another one that's one of the top restaurants in Latin America called Isolina. And the reason I love it is that it's, it's reintroduced this concept of a modern tavern. So you can still be, you know, high end in a sense, and you can be treating yourself to something, a very special occasion, but in a modern tavern and a more casual sense. So you go there and first of all, the dishes are huge. One dish easily can feed three people. So you want to go and you want to bring your people with you, bring your friends, bring your family and get a couple dishes. And they do this amazing. There's this dish called seco. Do you guys like cilantro? Are you cilantro lovers or haters? Yes, yes. lovers, yes. lovers. Okay, oh, <laughs> then you will die. This dish is incredible. It is this stew that is just steeped in, in cilantro and this chili pepper that's indigenous to Peru. It's called the yellow chili, even though it's kind of got an orange color. And traditionally it was made with lamb, but this restaurant called Isolina by Chef uh, Jose del Castillo, it's made with short ribs. So you've got the short ribs just steeping in the cilantro and chili pepper stew and the meat I mean when they serve this dish you just look at it and you could almost just blow and the meat just kind of falls off the bone I mean it's really this spoon I mean it's ridiculous I'm so hungry so places like this yeah oh yeah it's like oh it brings a new level to soul food you're like I want a soul food that I and I've never even been to this country you know I have no emotional connection to it but I want it I feel it so the, yeah lots of great options for sure Man, I'm starting to understand why Lima has become this culinary destination with this, with all of these histories and all of this uh, cultural influence from like the French, the Italians, the Spanish. It's amazing. And then you have Eastern influence from Japan and China and Barranco with the cultural and historical mashup. That's why hipsters like it because they want different. They want to they want to recognize the old and the new. Yes, they want something that has character and identity and is unapologetic about what the identity is, what that identity is. You know, they don't try to, you know, 
kind of encase it into something that would be acceptable or easy to market, you know, to, to specific sector, you know, it's just, they want something real and Barranco is real, you know? Wow. I think we figured out where we're going to be staying. So unfortunately, when Elliot and I, um, we were in the planning stages, we, we did, we made the mistake that pretty much, like you said earlier, everybody does not giving ourselves enough time in Lima. Yeah. Um, we're pretty much, we're arriving. Uh, we have a night there on our first night and then we have the, uh, most of the day, the following day, but then that, that second evening we fly immediately to Cusco. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I was looking between those two neighborhoods, Bronco, and uh, I can't roll my R's at all. So I'm not even <laughs> going to try it. Um, yeah, and no. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, but now now I think I know where we're going to end up staying. Yeah. yeah and, you know, so Lima is a big, it's a big city, you know, but really you could do it and have a fair idea of what the city has to offer in about two days. So if you're here and you just have a day or a day and a half or 24 hours, you can definitely, you know, get all of the juice out of that fruit. You can absolutely enjoy it and get a real feel for what the city has to offer. Um, though it's spread out, the districts, you know, where, where you can be and where you can find a lot of those cultural offers, you can walk around, you know. You can walk and take a 20-minute walk and be in the next district and go exploring. So it's it's definitely definitely doable, you know. You can yeah. Well, yeah, out. so we have, mm-hmm. we have the night we, we fly in, the night we fly in, then that next day. And then we have, before we fly home, we fly back to Lima from Cusco. Cusco. We have that night and then the following day before we fly back to Philadelphia. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, not bad. We have a decent amount of time. It's not like we're just using Lima as a layover. We actually will be able to explore a little bit. Oh, great. That's great. You would be, yeah, you would definitely be missing out if you didn't. And I think people are finally starting to wake up to that. So like I said, when we started... Yeah, the average stay was less than a day. Now, so this is seven years later that we started the company, the average stay is about three days in Lima. So that's almost triple. So people are figuring it out. There's stuff to see here. <laughs> yeah, I think it's undeniable at this point with with where the food is headed. And for most people, like we had mentioned earlier, food being so important for any traveler, typically, to just skip over a city that is so established with their food and, and the type of food that you're going to get there, you can't miss it. It's... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, obviously, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I honestly base most of my trips on whether or not it the destination has good food. And I am so glad we did not just do Lima as a layover. And I'm so glad we're going to Peru in April. Uh, that this destination has been long overdue. And it's something that I... I had no idea. It wasn't on my radar until like last year when I watched Chef's Table. I was like, you know what? I kind of want to go there because food is my number one favorite thing to do when traveling. And that brings me to my number two and three favorite things, which I want to ask you about. So they're very close and they start the day and end the day. One is coffee. The other is (laughs) wine and beer. Okay. All right. All right. Cool. Can we just just sum the evening as alcohol? (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, just alcohol just alcohol yeah that will work all right those are great questions and actually very interesting because you know tourism isn't the only sector that's changing um coffee actually so there is still a little bit of a nescafe culture but this is kind of a relic of the 80s you know 80s is very modern that was almost like yesterday and in the 80s we haven't really gotten into this but if to put it into context for lima you had uh, a major economic crisis in the country. You had inflation of over 7,500%. You had terrorism with bombs going off right in the heart of the city and all in the provinces, killing thousands of people by the shining path. You, I mean, it was just kind of hell on earth. And this is in the 80s up until, you know, the early 90s. The country has changed a, a lot since then, you know, but at this time, you know, anything that was imported, first of all, it was like impossible to even get, you know, you had almost a similar to like a Venezuela type situation just to get your basic food staples at that time. So any kind of, you know, specialty coffee, I mean, forget about it. This concept didn't even exist was on nobody's radar at the time. So now you've had um, a couple players step out and start taking a lot of trips to the coffee-producing regions. You've had Peru uh, participating in a lot of international contests on the quality of the coffee and garnering more and more recognition. So the country is actually the sixth largest exporter in the Arabica coffee bean. 
But with this coffee bean, we have to, we're competing with Brazil, with Vietnam, with Kenya that can produce much larger volumes so they can compete better on price. And at the end of the day, Peru's just not in that position. So what the country and what the sector has chosen to do largely is focus on the niche market of organic coffee, which is awesome for coffee lovers because yeah. then we're focusing on a premium product, some very high quality product with a lot of interesting characteristics. Uh, different roasting methods, different type of, uh, you know, brewing methods. So this has become very trendy and fashionable. So just two weeks ago, you know, you're having like a lot, la latte art competition, you know, in, in Lima. And you've had these different um, contests about the quality of coffee in Peru. And, you know, earlier this year, I think one in Las Vegas. And again, a Peruvian producer won. So Peru is actually producing the best organic coffee in the world for the last couple of years. So now all the shops are coming up because it wasn't really available, easily available to the consumer directly, you know. Um, so now you have all these specialty coffee shops opening up. So within the last like two years, there are like six or seven new places where you can actually get them when before there was one, maybe two. And the world was so small. Everyone knew, you know, the baristas from this place, you know, what producers are they working with? I mean, it's a very small community. Um, and now it's expanding and the interest in coffee is expanding. So then the coffee culture is expanding as the market is more educated and demanding more sophisticated and better quality products that are not just for export, but for domestic consumption as well. So you see these trends happening. So we really like to focus. I mean, I love coffee, too. I mean, I don't know what I would do without it in the morning. So when we started with the tour, our morning tour, so we pick you up at around you know, 930 from your hotel. And our first stop is actually a little coffee shop. And what is particular, it's, um, you know, they've been working in the coffee with coffee beans since the 50s. It's called Tostaduria Bicetti. Um, they actually work only with organic Peruvian coffee. They have a lab in the coffee shop where they select daily the coffee beans one by one when they're green. All right. So they're selecting these coffee beans one by one, looking for the size, looking for any imperfections. Because at the time when you roast it, if you have any, you know, that are smaller, have, you know, little, um, you know, pieces missing, the weight is a little bit different, they're different in aspect, they're going to roast unevenly, and they're going to make your batch bitter, they could burn it, they could ruin it. So it's a very delicate process. So every day they do this there, and they roast them in house while we're there in the morning during the visit. So then you get this, the smell, the aroma just fills the garden outside, there are coffee plants, so you can see what the cherries look like. So you see the whole process really, you know, without the actual producers delivering the beans while we're there, uh, you know, you get to see that at least the end consumer part of the process and learn a little bit more about the bean. So and they're also doing like coffee uh, workshops to learn about that process uh, there in house, you know. So this the education is changing about coffee, which is changing the consumption and changing the trend. And all while trying to focus on sustainability. So this is awesome. This is great for a country like, like Peru. So. A, a dream coffee drinker. Yeah. Oh, Bob, yeah. We're, yeah. we're going there. You, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yes. You will love it. It is fantastic. It's just really cool to see. It's really unique because how many times can you go in and you see them selecting it and then roasting it there right in front of you? You know, it's incredible. Not that often. No. No. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, not so much. Uh, so coffee, you're, this is paradise for coffee lovers, oh, actually. Good. And the Financial Times, the place I'm talking about, the Financial Times came out in March or April saying that this place was one of the best places in the entire world to buy your coffee. So make sure you exchange those dollars for soles and take your coffee back home because it is some good stuff. Yeah. So we got to get your expectations up. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. For the, uh, when we were talking, so the wine and the beer, that's, um, yeah, a, a story that's actually kind of similar in, in some senses. You know, wine, there is not a big wine drinking culture at all in Peru. Uh, it's primarily beer and then pisco as well. So pisco is a type of brandy fermented from grapes, all right? Uh, like, it's the spirit that is in the pisco sour. If you've heard of pisco sours that have kind of made it out and about, you know, on many menus in the last few years. Um, so wine is, is not, it's not huge, but you have a couple people, um, looking at, um, new ways, you know, opening up, you know, vineyards like in Cusco, looking at kind of younger wines or looking at more niche markets in terms of, um, producing wine. There is wine production here for sure. Um, but domestic consumption isn't, isn't particularly high. So it's not, you know, there's not a lot of focus on it. Beer, however, is a different story. So I, 
I like my beer as well. And, you know, I'm a Kansas City girl. I like a nice <laughs> cold beer, especially in the summer. And when we first moved here about seven years ago, you could only get, you know, the big commercial and, you know, just your commercial beer, you know, it's good. It's interesting for a while, but you get bored. There's not that much selection and craft beer didn't even really exist. And there was this one guy that we knew about doing it that we'd heard of because we went to a little dive restaurant and we saw that they had something other than, you know, this very traditional, very commercial beer. And we're like, no way. Where do you get this? Please tell me where you get it. He's like, well, if you want to get it, you know, I'll give you a number. And he like slipped us a number <laughs> on a torn off piece of paper. And he's like, you got to call this guy's number and then you got to meet him in the center of town, like kind of in this dark alley and he'll bring you a case, you know, and you do the trade off and you're like, <laughs> are, we're still talking about beer, right? Like, I know, I mean, this sounds like something else, you know, just because it was not, you know, there was no demand for it and it wasn't, you know, it hadn't really made its way into the restaurants yet or into the market yet. But now you have this explosion of craft beers. So they are infusing it and making it with everything you can think of from coffee that we were just talking about to chocolate to chili peppers um, from purple corn. So we have like 32 uh, listed varieties of corn. So purple corn is one of them. So purple corn beer as well. So you have quinoa beer as well. So the pseudo grain that everyone's crazy about quinoa, which is from Peru and Bolivia, right? Quinoa beer. So now you have, you know, beer rooms and tap rooms that are opening finally to give us beer lovers. <laughs> A little variety, and they're keeping it local, a nice local variety using, again, local ingredients and creating these fusions, So, which is really interesting, but sometimes you just want, you know, like maybe just Indian food, you know, like not mixed right. with Peruvian food. Right. So like very <laughs> true classic um, food, you know, international cuisine sometimes can be a little tricky to find, but you'll always, you know, keep your taste buds interested with all of the different fusions that you're like, who even thought of this? You know, this is brilliant. So it's pretty yeah. interesting. Bob, it sounds like if you wanted to, you could open up a brewery down there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you could. <laughs> well, all right. So you touched up on the, my one of my next questions. So fusing chocolate with beer. So I had learned about uh, chocolate through chocolate in Peru, not chocolate in general, but through <laughs> uh, the Anthony Bourdain episode where he visited oh, yeah. uh, Lima and they yeah. went on this this quest, this trek through the Andes for this chocolate tree that had the white, I think they were albino, like cocoa nibs. Is it cocoa? Yes. Cacao? How do you cacao, yeah. Cacao. In English, cocoa, but in Spanish, it would be cacao. Yeah, the cacao. Uh-huh. And so, and so I, I never realized that chocolate was such a big, big thing in Peru. And, yes. you know, so now I think it's appropriate that we talked dinner, we talked coffee, we went through some alcohol. What about chocolate? What, what about dessert? Dessert. That's important. I mean, you can't skip the sweet tooth. I mean, there's in Peru, yes, that sweet is sweet, very much so. Um, and chocolate is a big part of that. So, again, you know, talking about um, it, it, something similar, you know, that is happening in the chocolate industry that we've seen in the coffee industry as well and in the beer. So you're seeing more producers, you're seeing more varieties. So GMOs, Peru is one of the few countries in the world where GMOs are completely illegal. Now, I'm not here to debate that. There are two sides of that story, you know, as we've all probably read about. Um, so, but what you can undeniably say is that you get more different varieties. You have a more a wider variety of products when, when you have an absence of GMOs in that sense. Um, so most of them are coming out of the Amazon. And something interesting is that out of all of the different types and varieties of cacao, Peru has 60% of those varieties in Peru. So there are more and more being discovered. I had read, and this is about four or five months ago, that they've even found one. You're talking about the albino, the, the cacao, a mm -hmm. pink variety. So imagine, you know, we could potentially be seeing in the next, you know, five to 10 years, a pink, a naturally pink chocolate, make it out to market. So it's, uh, it's something that is just now being, you know, discovered and looked at. But luckily, it, it is moving slow. You know, sometimes I do hear people, you know, that kind of lament the fact that it takes so long for this to come out and make, the, you know, make its way onto an international stage. But on the other hand, you know, in a more reserved perspective, I guess, would be it's great because it gives us time to think about how we want to grow and go forward and make sure that the proper framework is in place 
so that everyone has benefited, you know, and so that it really is sustainable and so that we can do this moving forward and do it the right way from the beginning, not, you know, have so many corrective measures taken or corrosive practices in place at some point. So I think it can be, you know, double-edged sword, but I think it can be a good thing as well. So chocolate, yes, Peru's also won uh, several awards within the last few years for its chocolate because they're focusing on that organic chocolate, very high quality, looking at, um, you know, producers that take a lot of time and a lot of effort to make sure they just have top of the line, really interesting products and raw materials and ingredients. So you, in Lima now, it used to be kind of difficult. And this is again like seven years ago, you know, just since I've lived here. You know, you would have your typical classic, very commercial chocolate, but to find anything other than that, you would have to look a little harder. You know, you couldn't just find it by scratching the surface. Now you can find all these specialty chocolates. We, we were just contacted last week by a guy who is interested in kind of seeing what kind of project we can do together that has opened up a store that exclusively deals with chocolate, cheese, and coffee. And he brings it from all different regions of Peru. It is organic and they have each, you know, kind of a value added different perspective to their production process. So it's a thing. It's yeah. totally a wow. thing now. Can you get any better? That's like chocolate cheese Seriously. and coffee. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. I can't. I can never leave. It's it's terrible. And one thing. I mean, terrible. You know. <laughs> we. I went to South Africa in January, and a friend, you know, who's you know big foodie. She's like, I'm gonna set you up with all these different restaurant reservations. We're gonna go and explore and. I'm all about it. It's going to be great. But once you've lived in Peru and have been around this, and this is like your daily meals, everything else is just kind of like, yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> it's good. It's good. But everything is so fresh here. If you go to the supermarket, there, the frozen food section just doesn't exist. At best, you'll find one freezer with a couple products in there. But there's no frozen food section. So everything is really fresh. If you look up, you know, what are Peru's flagship kind of dishes, their national dishes, there are over 400 national dishes. So you could eat every day for over a year, different dishes, thanks again to a lot of the fusions. And then when you look at the biodiversity, so in the world, there are, I think, 113 different microclimates. Peru has 84 of them. So we can produce all kinds of ingredients year round to provide to the freshness, you know, to the different cuisine. So really, it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's a really cool place to be with a lot going on. And it's just starting to get discovered. Yeah. So that's kind of a cool to see the evolution. It seems like it was destined to become a culinary destination. And they've finally started to realize that and kind of capitalize on it. And to capitalize on it and intelligently and sustainably, sufficiently and doing it the right way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you have, you know, it's, it is, it does sound and it, it does seem like it was destined just because you have all of these natural resources here that are just right for that. And then you have, you know, we talked a little bit about the crisis, the economic crisis in the 80s and the 90s, you know, out of the 90s and the early 2000s, you had um, a series of different players that were just really important. So we talked about the restaurant briefly, Astrid y Gaston, which is one of the top 50 in the world and has been for several years now. Uh, so this is run by Astrid, or I'm sorry, by Gaston Acurio and his wife Astrid, okay? And Gaston Acurio, both of them together, actually, um, kind of starting putting the idea of even being a chef on the map. You know, in the 90s, we didn't have chefs in Lima or in Peru. It was an economic crisis. No one even had literally the palate for that or the interest in it. It was all about survival, you know? Um, not tasting menus, exotic tasting menus, you know? And these people, they studied at the Cordon Bleu in France. They came back. You know, this is kind of a longer story. This is an extremely abbreviated version. But the end of it is what they've done is rescue all of these local ingredients and fuse them with very sexy, sophisticated French techniques of cooking. So you have this kind of marriage between these two things. And then he decides, we're going to put this out on, on the world map, Peruvian cuisine. So his, Gaston's kind of vision in this sense was when he would go to different cities, he would look for the real estate to put the restaurants where it was more high-end, to position it as a very high-end cuisine. So, you know, if it's in New York, it's like the Fifth Avenue. If it's in San Francisco, it's in the pier. If it's in Madrid, it's on La Castellana, like the, the poshest kind of parts of town. And that's where he would position it. And at this time, there was a complete absence of knowledge about what Peruvian cuisine even was, let alone like Peru. Like, where is Peru? What Peru wasn't even on the map for a lot of people, you know? Let alone its food. What kind of food is from there? Whereas if you look at Mexican cuisine, for example, and how it's kind of progressed throughout the United States and what it's evolved into that it's not even Mexican cuisine in that sense, but 
commercially, it's almost been taken over a little bit by the states, right? So no one's ever going to pay $50 for a burrito. You're not going to have that. So it's already been positioned in the market. You know, how much you're willing to pay, what kind of setting. It's not exactly fine dining. It's always casual. You know, you have these beliefs set around it, but you have this absence of that. So you get Gaston, who positions it as this very sophisticated cuisine with all of this richness and ingredients. And you have several chefs that are contemporaries of his that start doing the same thing. Then they get their own TV shows. So he has had a television show that's been on for years and years and years called Culinary Adventure, where he goes to these kitchens of these restaurants and gets their, their best dish and the secrets and the stories and the legends behind them. Takes them to his kitchen, gives it this gourmet twist, and introduces, voila, you know, this fusion, this very sophisticated take on a traditional dish. And people just fell in love with what he is doing for the country. So it started drumming up this national pride around food and around cuisine. And for the first time ever, practically, bringing people from different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnic backgrounds together at the same table to be proud and create this national identity around food. So the government got behind that and started promoting Peru as a destination based on the food as well and using these chefs as ambassadors. And now Gaston has been listed as one of the top 10 most influential chefs in the world. So you have this just whole social movement behind it. Now we have more cooking schools, culinary schools per capita than any other city in the world. This is what everyone wants to be. He's a superstar. So if you were to say it, tell a Peruvian, hey, I'm going to Peru, you know, what should I do? Nowadays before saying, oh, go to Machu Picchu, you know, go see the Amazon River, they're going to say, eat a ceviche, drink a pisco sour, try lomo saltado, you know, try, try tiradito, go here. They're going to be talking about the food, you know, because it's just become a source of identity and pride that's really lifted the country. So when you have that kind of emotional tie behind it, I think it just makes, you know, the, the fame behind Peru's culinary tradition that much richer. And it's going to go that much further in that sense. Wow. And everyone can actually, it's, it's still tangible. It's not like a cultural history that people don't necessarily identify with, but you, everyone can identify with food. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. That's awesome. That's an, that's a really uplifting story because that was only 20 years ago that they had the economic crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. guess 25. I mean, it was, well, man, I'm like 30. So I'm, I'm in my 30s. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, it's yesterday. It's yesterday. But it, it really is. When you think about 7,500% inflation, and now it's down to like 4%, we're one of the countries with the lowest inflation rates in the world. You know, 7,500 is only behind, you know, Germany post-World War II and like Mugabe, you know, and Zimbabwe. You know, it's like 1 billion. I mean, this, this rates of inflation per year were just astronomical. I mean, it was almost a, a joke, but the sickest joke that's around, you know, and Peru has managed to, to kind of get back on track uh, from several different, in several different ways. And we've had an economic boom and growth over the last 20 years that's permitted an investment in infrastructure, an investment in education and an investment, you know, we still have a long way to grow. But in this time period, the, imagine this, poverty has been reduced, like extreme poverty from 76% to below 24% in a span of about 25 years. So that's remarkable when you think about it. So now we're talking about more expendable income. Now people can actually go out to restaurants and take their families out to restaurants on the weekends. I mean, now you have people looking not just to survive, but now looking for sources of entertainment. So this is what we see. We see a whole economic progression, you know, that's really resulted from this economic growth and the culinary kind of spotlight that Peru is no exception to that story. Uh, it's definitely very much dependent and linked to it. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Not only did they recover, but they they exceeded anything, you know, I to to imagine this country Peru as it is now 25 years ago, I don't think anybody had had that vision in mind. But this yeah, is incredible absolutely. and and it's nice to see, you know, I, most people at least initially, you know, you think of Peru and you automatically think of Machu Picchu. Definitely. Lima, and now knowing what we know now and seeing that people are learning about Peru, I mean, it's only going to get better, right? I mean, I know, I know. <laughs> I wonder if, if there's any city that can rival Lima's food industry. Italy, maybe? Is Rome or New York? I, I don't know, but. Yeah, you know, we, so as of last year when we were talking about, you know, we managed the, kind of mentioned that index, the San Pellegrino's uh, world's 50 best restaurants, right, in the world. And Peru, so last year we had as well, you know, three in like the top 15. I mean, it's just really close. But you could really say even in the top 50, 
only four cities in the world could say that. So you had New York, London, uh, Mexico City, and Lima, only four cities. And based on the ranking of those individual restaurants per city, Lima's restaurants were ranked higher. So it's consistently beating out other cities in terms of a very consolidated foodie destination. So that's kind of where it's at. So you definitely have other cities that have kind of a, an offer, you know, but maybe not so consolidated at such a high level as what we're seeing in Lima right now. Right. And I, and I think that, you know, restaurants in New York, they're not New York food. It's not New York food. They're, they're pulling food from different countries and then creating incredible restaurants in the city, whereas Peru is using their own ingredients and it's Peruvian food, even though that is, you know, as we know now, a fusion of multiple cultures. I still don't think, you know, if you talk about New York food, you're talking about a hot dog from the vendor on the street corner. When you're talking the restaurants, it's typically, you know, fusion from, you know, French restaurants, Italian restaurants, whatever it may be. Right. So I yeah, think that's, that's something that yeah. Yeah, Lima has that's very unique is that when you go there and sit down at one of their restaurants, you're getting you're getting a very authentic experience. Um, you know, so I think when, that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. Well, yeah. And that's an excellent point that you mentioned, you know, about the different fusions and the fact that the restaurants that aren't focusing on Peruvian tradition history. So when we're talking about the chef's table episode with Virgilio Martinez, you know, he was talking about the process of um, preparing one of the dishes, Watia, and about how he went there. And they're talking about, you know, digging, creating like a space in the earth and just the whole almost ceremonial process behind that. And once again, you know, like not only are, is he using indigenous ingredients, but just autochthonous ways of preparing those dishes as well and bringing it to this ultra sophisticated level. So it's beautiful to see that, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, authenticity. And that's a debate that, you know, in Lima Gourmet Company, some people, you know, are like, well, you know, that's maybe not representative of all of Peru, you know, the gourmet company. But at the same time, authenticity has several faces. And you can go and you can get street food and you can go and you can get your like middle range sandwich. And then you can go to these fantastically, you know, sophisticated restaurants. So the reality of Lima is pluralistic. And this plurality is what makes it such a dynamic destination in that sense. You can really have it all. Yeah. Really close together. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. couldn't have said that better. <laughs> no. And, and you sort of, I mean, we've covered throughout the episode, but in, in closing today, what would you like to say to someone who may be interested in coming to Lima or who is coming to Lima? Maybe, maybe Elliot. <laughs> maybe us. <laughs> yeah, we, we are. Um, what, what, what do you want to just portray to them and let them know about what they can expect and what they should do when they're there? Yeah, that make sure that you do give a little bit of, that you leave a little bit of time for Lima, for sure. And don't be afraid to get out of the hotel or get out of your comfort zone. Because it is a big city, there are a lot of people, it can seem a little overwhelming, and at some parts, it, it can be overwhelming in a sense that maybe it seems a little bit of chaotic. But when you stop to actually look at kind of the chaos that's surrounding you, that's where the beauty is, because it's like this dance, and everyone is a player, and everyone is a part in this tremendous dance that goes throughout the city as they brush past each other every day, and that's what creates the city and makes it so vibrant. So make sure you take time, get out. Peruvians are so, so, so friendly and so welcoming. So get out and talk to the locals. Try, you know, learn a couple words of Spanish and the locals will be more than happy to try back or practice their English, you know, and get in and show you their city and show you their food, show you what they love, show open their, really their homes to you and their way of living. So get out talk to people and get out and explore, just walk around because you never know what you're going to find, you know, on these little kind of side streets and just pop your head in. Don't be to try, don't be afraid to try new things, but definitely, definitely leave a little space for Lima and the itinerary. It's a must. Awesome. Thank you for that advice. We're, we'll, we'll do it. We're doing it. We're going oh, yeah. awesome. to, we have to, <laughs> yeah, for you sure. Have to. Look so, us up. I'll show you the cool, the cool yeah. joints around. We'll give right. people an idea where they can um, sign up for the Lima Gourmet Company, where they can see you on social media. And uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the company is called the Lima Gourmet Company. The website's limagourmetcompany.com. And, you know, we have an active Facebook page, Instagram. And if you want to kind of see what other people have to say about us, I'm all for uh, checking all possible resources, you know, with the democratization of information on the Internet. So TripAdvisor, we're actually the number one activity on TripAdvisor out of 313 activities. So look us up, see what people say, 
and we will be happy to have you. And we take care of all the reservations here in a really small team. And it's like family and friends just coming down to visit. And we just want you to see the best and have a good time. Go back, tell your friends and come down again and bring more with you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, guys. All right. That is our show. All I could think about when she was talking about the guinea pig was Amanda's guinea pig when she was growing up. Her name was Fufu, and she lived to a ripe old age of nine, and she died of butt cancer. Yeah, R.I.P. Fufu. I I now can't wait to, can't wait to eat some Fufu in Peru. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's actually a dish that I was looking forward to even before we started recording. Just seeing pictures of it, it just seems very interesting to me. And I'm all about trying new things, especially when it comes to food when I'm, food when I'm traveling around. So. Yeah, looking forward to that. But that podcast was awesome. She she was great, very informative, very passionate. It was it was a great time talking to her. Yeah, I can't wait to catch up with her and hopefully, you know, go to one of those restaurants. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right, everyone. Well, as usual, um, please leave us a review on iTunes if you can. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook. Send us an email if you have someone that you want to be on the show or if you personally want to be on the show or if you just want to say hi, we will say hi back. Maybe we strike up a conversation. Maybe you just tell us that we suck. Whatever whatever you want to do. Um, We're open to criticism. Yes, we are. Uh, but that's it. So I, we hope you enjoyed the show and tune in next time.